Welcome back, Katie. It's good to have you back, you and your inimitable prayers. We hope you enjoyed some Sabbath on your sabbatical, even though you were giving us new theology every day you were away. Welcome back. So as you heard, the uh, Lenten sermon series at Kenilworth Union is called Cabinet of Colloquial Curiosities. This is inspired by a book by the English writer Paul Anthony Jones. If you want to learn a little bit more about that book, you can look at the worship notes today. A strange word called Drury. We're looking at seven obsolete words in the English language during Lent while we travel with Jesus through the Gospel of John. And today, John 4, well-known story. Jesus came to Jacob's well about noon, and a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me something to drink. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a Samaritan? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me something to drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water, gushing up with eternal life. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. The woman said to him, Sir, I see you are a prophet. Then she left her water jar at the well and went back to the city and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He is the Messiah from Galilee. And the villagers left the city and were on their way to him. Thanks be to God for God's holy word. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I think this story of the Samaritan woman at the well is so beloved because in this vivid snapshot of a wounded woman, Jesus shows us how Jesus constantly, relentlessly, routinely reaches out to heal and touch the least, the last, the lost, the lame, the leper, the loser, and the lonely. And I infer that the Samaritan woman is lonely because John tells us that Jesus meets her at the well at noon. Now, this was not the typical time of day for Palestinian women to fetch their water. Typically, they traveled in a pack from their village homes to the regional well at dusk or dawn to avoid the heat of the day. And I think John is implying that this woman is not part of the pack. She's not part of the coffee clutch, the sewing circle, the book club. She's an exile, an outcast, alone. And maybe the reason that she's alone is that she is a quintuple divorcee. And now the man she's living with is not her husband. Do you know the Australian comedian Barry Humphreys? Barry Humphreys has a stage alter ego in drag called Dame Edna Everidge. And on one of her shows, Dame Edna was interviewing Jane Seymour. Remember Dr. Quinn, medicine woman? Jane Seymour has been married and divorced four times. And Dame Edna, Edna asked her, so tell me the secret of your successful marriages. 
The Samaritan woman must bear some of the stigmata of those five broken relationships. She's still standing, bless her resilient little Samaritan heart. She's still standing and she's still fetching water. But she must be at least a little bit wounded, right? And yet those broken relationships must have created the person she is that day when Jesus met her. And like that Samaritan woman, we are all mixed, mingled, modeled mosaics of past relationships, right? Romances, marriages, friendships, family, colleagues, business partners, past and present. Some of them are good, some of them are bad, some are happy, some are sad, some are broken, and some are healthy, but each one of them has contributed to who we are today. We've taken something from each of those past relationships. And now I'm going to reach into my cabinet of colloquial curiosities and pull out an odd word. Until I read Paul Anthony Jones, I had never heard the word drury. And I'll bet you haven't either because it has vanished from the English language. Drury is a 13th century French word that refers to a keepsake or a love token your lover gives you. It could be almost anything. It could be a ring or a bracelet or a necklace or a Petoskey stone. Or maybe a curio you put in a place of honor on your desk or on your bookshelf. My beloved gave me this splendid Drury. A bunch of us went to Scotland a couple of years ago and we visited the grave of Greyfriars Bobby. This is Greyfriars Bobby. He was a wee sky terrier who hung out around Greyfriars Church for 16 years beginning in 1856. Greyfriars Bobby belonged to a night watchman named John Gray. And Bobby followed John Gray around on his rounds down the cobblestone lanes of Edinburgh for two years. And then in 1858, John Gray died of tuberculosis. And Greyfriars Bobby refused to leave his grave for the next 14 years, except once a day when he would wander down to the local pub for lunch. And so for the last 160 years, Greyfriars Bobby has been an emblem of love and loyalty for the Scots. And if you were to visit Greyfriars Bobby's prominent tombstone today in Greyfriars Churchyard, you would find that his admirers have left dog toys on his grave and sticks for him to fetch in whatever afterlife we Sky Terriers inhabit after they cross the Rainbow Bridge. So you can see how much my wife loves me to give me such a splendid Drury. So a cute little figurine of Greyfriars Bobby can be a Drury. Also, a wedding ring can be a Drury. A wedding ring is a love token your lover gives you as a symbol of her everlasting love. So a while back, I was reading a biography of William Shakespeare and learned how they did wedding rings back in Shakespeare's day in the 16th century. In that time, they didn't give grooms rings. Only the brides got a ring. And when a man would marry a woman, he would take her left hand and he would slip her ring 
momentarily over the inner four fingers of her left hand. He'd start with the thumb, then he would go to the index finger, then middle finger, and then the ring finger where, of course, he would leave it. And while he was doing that, he would say, in nomine patris, in nomine filii, in nomine spiritus sancti, I thee wed, amen. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Ghost, I thee wed, amen. And then he would leave it on her fourth finger, her ring finger, because they thought the vein in that finger runs straight to the heart. Isn't that wonderful? A wedding ring is a Drury. So a wedding ring is a Drury, a keepsake, a love token. But what do you do with a keepsake if you don't keep the relationship? Yes? What do you do with a wedding ring when the marriage is over? Don't tell my wife this, but she's actually my second girlfriend. When I was a senior in high school, I thought I was in love, and I guess I was. And so that first semester of my senior year in high school, I saved all the pennies I made from shoveling snow and mowing lawns. And at Christmas time, I went down to the local jeweler to buy a Christmas present. I still remember the patient, kind lady at the jewelry store who helped this besotted 17-year-old kid pick out a Christmas present for his first girlfriend. And I picked out, it wasn't impressive, it wasn't spectacular, but if I do say so myself, it was charming. It was this simple little gold pendant with a tiny diamond chip, probably cost about $50. So that relationship lasted for about a year, and then she broke my heart into a million pieces. But I've always wondered what happened to that charming little gold pendant with the diamond chip. And you've probably got many old Drury's in your home too. Maybe they're hidden in a box on the top shelf of your closet. Or maybe you display them prominently on your bookshelf. But Paul Anthony Jones says that we ought to take those old Drury's out now and then and handle them and admire them and appreciate them because they're emblems of all the memories and experiences that have made us who we are. Some of those old relationships may have ended badly. Maybe they broke us up. Some of them were beautiful and we appreciate them to this day, but they all contributed something to who we are. We took something from every one of those relationships because we're all mixed, mingled, modeled mosaics of past romances, some treasured and some resented. We're all complicated collages of past friendships, some of which ended amicably and others which ended bitterly. We're all multifarious medleys of past relationship with relationships with family and friends, business partners and colleagues. And we've taken something from every one of those. Maybe your ex broke your heart when he walked out on you. Maybe your significant other wounded your soul when she abandoned you for another. Still, those experiences made us who we are. Maybe we cultivated new virtues thereby. Maybe we developed an implacable resilience thereby. Maybe that ex that broke your heart made you laugh all the time until he didn't. 
Maybe that alienated former friend came up with suspenseful, fascinating stories that you have never forgotten and that you use to this day to be the life of the dinner party. Maybe someone you no longer speak to introduced you to edgy music you never would have encountered on your own. Maybe the boss you worked for for seven years was so impossible that it forced you to develop coping strategies, and now you are extremely adept at handling difficult people. You've endured the worst, so nothing bothers you anymore. Would it be possible in some cases, in some cases, to see these painful experiences as unwanted and disguised, but nevertheless valuable benedictions from the God who is always shaping us into the kind of persons God needs us to be. That Samaritan woman at the well was a quintuple divorcee, one better than Jane Seymour. She must bear the scars of that five times broken heart. But that's what made her who she is. And there she is, still standing. She manages to meet this Messiah from Galilee at that Samaritan well. And Jesus doesn't evict her from the village like her neighbors do. He seems to be the only one to realize that she's not dangerous, she's not difficult, she's not alien, she's just hurt. She's just rejected. She's just alone. And so he welcomes her into his lovely world of grace and respect and towering expectation. And you know what she does then? You know what the next thing she does is? She goes straight home to tell the few friends she has, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Somehow she thinks this is a wonderful thing. I'm not sure I would have appreciated a man who tells me everything I've ever done. But she thinks it's wonderful. Come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. He might be the Messiah from Galilee. Happy ending. She ends up being the first evangelist in the entire Christian story. She shares the good news. She knows who Jesus is. Happy ending. And so go home today and find an old Drury, maybe a pleasant one, maybe a difficult one, and take a minute to thank God for at least one person God has placed in your life to make you who you are today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.